Some of you uh, <clears throat> are aware that uh, the staff and several others from the church uh, recently attended a church leadership conference over in Sacramento, and uh, we were, I think, all of us blessed in so many different ways. One of the the uh, topics that was discussed was the way that um, an organization or a business or even a church uh, over time can have what's called mission drift, where the, you start out with a particular focus and uh, over time, sometimes even unbeknownst, uh, things can shift and uh, other items become a priority than what was originally uh, the focal point. Uh, one university some time ago was founded, and this university's mission statement was this, to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Now, what school do you imagine that was? A nice Bible college? It was Harvard University. That's right. And within a few decades of Harvard's founding, uh, some local pastors in that area came and said they've already going through mission drift. And so they decided it was time to found uh, a new university. You know what that university was? Yeah. Yale. That's right. Um, back in the uh, medieval period, um, out of the need of, uh, in Europe, out of the need for providing for the poor, some Franciscan monks began uh, really what was a food bank. It was called uh, Monte uh, Pietatius. Sorry, my Latin is very poor. Um, what they did was provide food for uh, those in need and low-income loans to help uh, people be sure that they could make day-to-day. Uh, it was a, an organization and a, a way of serving the poor that was blessed by the Pope in the 1500s. And, uh, you know, it, it uh, turned into, over time, and is still now today what it became, pawn shops. <laughs> now, pawn shops often, by reputation at least, uh, have been uh, known to exploit the poor rather than to help them in many ways. But the point is that a, an organization, a business, a church can start off with particular focal points and a particular central core to their mission, and that can drift over time. Um, and it does happen to churches. And a part of what I want us to think about today is, is at least what is part of the church's mission and part of that mission is what we've already been singing about and uh, talking to our friend Grace about is about the grace of God. It's to know God's grace, to live in God's grace, and to share God's grace with a craving world. Philip Yancey, who is uh, an author, one of his most well-known books, was uh, titled, What's So Amazing About Grace? And when he talks about grace, this is what he says, that grace is the church's great distinctive. It's the one thing that the world cannot duplicate and the one thing that it craves above all else. For only grace can bring hope and transformation to a jaded world. Gordon MacDonald, the pastor and church leader, he has also said in similar vein that the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You not, need not be a Christian to build houses, to feed the hungry or to heal the sick. There is only one thing that the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Grace is the particular the aspect of what God does in and through the church. I wonder sometimes if the world's current yearning to promote tolerance as its highest virtue is because it cannot duplicate or replicate this need for grace. 
and an understanding of what God's grace is. Churches are challenged, just like other organizations in every generation, to keep its mission central, to keep the main thing the main thing. Back in 1930s Germany, the so-called German Christians, uh, as uh, Adolf Hitler rose to power, they became more concerned with the, the rise and the solidarity of the German people more than they were about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of that, what uh, many would, well, it certainly was a lack of, <laughs> of keeping a core, the central reality of the church, this idea of the confessing church, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer became associated with to uh, give a, a truer, more orthodox, more central, mission-critical perspective of what the church is, not to be blended with any sort of culture, but to be distinct above and out of any culture. Today, churches can go on mission shifts. We can promote certain visions of social action, but some lose sight along the way of the essential element of God's grace. So what is our mission? At least in part, our mission is to know the grace of God, the grace that is found only in Jesus, and to live in that grace throughout our life and into the life to come. Our Bible passage today deals with this topic of grace and all, and some at least, uh, of the contours of it. Let me invite you, open your Bibles, would you, to Ephesians chapter 2. Grace being God's mission and our mission. Ephesians chapter 2. We discussed last week about Ephesians having six chapters and uh, kind of breaks down uh, easily into the first three chapters being a lot of theological moorings and uh, footings upon which uh, we are to exercise our faith. And the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, deal more with uh, the practical outflowing of that faith, what it means to be in relationship together and so forth. Uh, we are in chapter 2 today, and I want to read that for you. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest... We were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, showed, uh, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages... He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. To do, Father, we thank you for these words, and we pray to you, living God, that this, your living word, would be alive in us, in our ears, and it would dance in our soul, and that you would stir action in us, and that you would feed our spirit through it. We ask you and we thank you in advance. 
What a gift your Bible is to us. Thank you. Bless it now as we investigate it. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. So um, the Apostle Paul here in chapter 2 in these first 10 verses is laying out a contrast. It's a contrast between our sin, my sin, your sin, our sin, and it's contrasting that with the great grace of God. It's these two things, and Paul is trying to help us celebrate and understand just how amazing the grace of God is and what God has done in His graceful act toward you and toward me. And it describes sin as putting us in a real pickle. I don't know what that expression means, but I like it. (laughs) Sin has put you and me in a real pickle. And if we don't really understand just how serious a matter sin is, we will never be able to celebrate fully the wonderful work of God's grace in Jesus Because when we understand sin and the way the Bible describes sin as that which completely separates us from God and that which totally ruins our ability to relate to one another, we begin to get a glimpse of how terrible sin is and how serious sin is. And if sin is such a serious matter, it has to be met with a serious solution. And so it is by grace that we have been saved That's a great phrase, and it's repeated twice. It's so good. It is by grace you have been saved. I want to hear that phrase multiple times today, and each time I want to emphasize a different part of the word, okay? A different word in the phrase. Are you with me? It is by grace that you have been saved. Here's the first word. It's you. It is by grace you have been saved. Who? You. Who? You. Who's Paul talking to? Great question. He's talking to those, if we look back in chapter 1, verse 13, read what it says. He says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. And he goes on talking about being marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. So those who have heard the good news of Jesus and have believed for themselves, It's a personal engagement. Who? It is you who have been saved. Who? Is it those who have grown up in a church building necessarily just by distinction of growing up in a church building? No. Is it those whose parents happen to be Christian believers and so by virtue of being born to them, you become a believing Christian? No. Who is it? It is those who have heard and understood the gospel of Jesus and those who have believed. We say about it today. Did you catch it? In Amazing Grace. Remember what John Newton writes in that song? He says, Grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved the day I first believed. The day I first believed. So who is Paul talking to? It is... God has saved you by grace. Who? Those who have heard and understood the gospel, what Jesus has done, His coming in bodily form into the world, His living a perfect life, His going to death on a cross. And on that cross, His perfect life was the only way of taking your and my imperfect life of sin upon Himself. And in so doing, in His resurrection from the dead, he validated that he really can deal with this serious issue of sin. So who is it? Those who have heard, understood the gospel, and believed. It is by grace you have been saved. 
Let's pick out another word. How about saved? It is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace that you have been saved. What does it mean to be saved? Well, it's about the gospel. We just have been talking about it. The idea of being saved is the word is used in different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes when, when the apostles, uh, the early followers were out on the, the uh, rocky uh, lake, um, what's it called? <laughs> the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> when they, they're out there and the storm is raging and they cry out, Jesus, save us. They're not talking in that moment. Take me to heaven. They're talking about save my physical life because I'm not sure I'm going to make it off of this lake. I'm afraid I'm going to get swamped and drugged down to the bottom. Jesus, save us. So that, that's one way that the word saved is used in the Scripture. Here and many other places, it's describing a spiritual rescue. It's describing that which God has done to restore us to be the people He intended us to be at creation, the Bible describes us as being people created in the image of God. And because sin is so bad, it messes up that sense of God's image in us. It distorts us. And so Jesus wants to come and to restore. He wants to recreate us in that sense spiritually. So salvation is God's power to rescue and to restore and then to reintroduce us to the world, to reintroduce us to our families, to reintroduce us to our brothers and sisters as ones who are spiritually alive. It is by grace that you have been saved. Who? Those who have heard and understood and believed the gospel of Jesus. It is by grace that you have been saved, that Jesus desires to restore and renew and reintroduce you to the world as someone who is now spiritually alive. And finally, this morning, it is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. How? By hearing and believing in who Jesus is and what He has done. How does it happen? It's by taking this gift, right? The, the passage in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, it says, and this is not anything that you have done. This is Bryce's paraphrase. It's not anything that you have done. Right? You cannot earn it. You can't work enough. You can't be a good enough person. You can't give enough money. You can't serve enough for the poor. You can't earn the good grace of God. You just can't do it. And so often I still hear this in philosophy today, people talking about what does it mean to be right with God. And still I hear in different ways, not just this way, but what I hear so many people still saying is that life is kind of like this big balance. And it's this big scale. And if somehow my good deeds can outweigh my bad deeds, if I'm more kind than I am mean, if I'm more generous than I am selfish, somehow God will look upon what I've done and it will outweigh the bad stuff and God will receive me and accept me and let me walk with Him. But that's not what the Bible says. It says it is not because of anything you and I could do and it's not because we deserve the love of God. But God gives you His love because He loves you. Now here's what I often have conversations with people here in Marin County. We, we'll talk about the love of God. You know, a lot of people, that, that's not a hard thing for them to embrace. They, they can, they're kind of down with, hey, God loves me. What's not to love? Right? But when you begin to talk about sin, when you begin to talk about the things that, that ruin our relationship with God... 
That's where boy, things kind of begin to break down. But when you start talking to people about that reality of the gospel, the simple message of the gospel, and then you can insert what God has done to solve the problem, that helps magnify and it helps put a, a spotlight on the wonder of God's grace. He didn't have to do it, but He did it. You didn't deserve that He would do it, but He did it. And He offers you, not from what you've done or I've done, but He gives it to you as a gift. I still remember when I was a young child, I heard uh, a person standing up just like this, and and this is such an enduring image to me. He says, it's kind of like imagine your birthday. In my family, in my circle, uh, we've got a lot of people in April and May who have birthdays. So we've been celebrating birthdays all over the place, and uh, boys have been going over to parties, and uh, birthday dinners and all sorts of things. And don't you love the, the people who, who love giving greeting cards, right? And the people who really take a lot of time to, to examine the card. And they'll sometimes spend hours reading the greeting card because they want it to reflect exactly what is in their heart. And you know when they give you that card, it's not just been like what I might do. I'll walk in. Now, these colors look nice. Those are okay words. Let's grab it and go. Right? You know some people spend the time looking at it and, oh, this is so perfect. Is it? They take it and they buy it. Or when they give you a gift, and they're the real gift-giving kind of people, right? They don't give you something you've never want or never use or that you really don't enjoy. These are the kind of people that really know how to give gifts. You know what I'm talking about? People who uh, really think about you and their their choice of the gift. And they, they think about, they know you, and it's a reflection of how well they know you because they give you something that matches up with your hobbies the things that you love to do, the places you like to go. And they get this gift and they give it to you and, and they wrap it neat beautifully and they offer it to you and how great it is to open that gift. And imagine sitting down at a table with somebody and, and it's your birthday and they offer you this gift and you talk about how beautiful the wrapping is and uh, you talk about what's inside and you can't wait uh, to open it and, and that conversation's done. They go on their way. You get up from the table and you leave that gift sitting there unopened. If you never take the time to open the gift and to hold it and actually use it and to take it into your life, it really doesn't become your gift. It's a gift offered, but it's not a gift received in the fullest sense of the way. And so God says in Ephesians chapter 2, 9, that this is the work of God. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And so God has given us this gift of His grace and salvation And he extends it to you, and he says, I love you enough to shop very carefully for what you most need. And I've wrapped it up in this package of Jesus, and I offer it to you, but it only becomes your gift if you receive it, if you hear it and believe and choose to walk and follow after the one Jesus. This is what grace is all about. And then he goes into talking about, in verse 10, that we are God's workmanship. There's a future aspect to it. It's not just looking back. When I received the Lord 20 years ago, and I'd only celebrate that, it's about walking in the grace of God today and how that grace prepares me for the future. It says we are God's workmanship. We are His handiwork. We are His masterpiece. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The good works don't come so that God will somehow give us His grace. No, no, that's backwards. The grace of God comes, and through the grace, we now are ready and able to do the good works that God is preparing in advance for us. So, 
He's preparing things ahead of you. Um, the Bible also describes God as, as a handy worker in other places. It describes God as a, a, a pottery, a potter, pottery maker. Um, and he is described as an engraver who engraves his word upon your heart. Uh, I envision him as an architect, the one who designs how the church should function and be. Uh, more than an architect, he's also the general contractor and the foreman, as he's the one who oversees the work and makes sure everything is lined up in the way that it, it should be done. But you see, these types of artistry, it's functional art. God is an artist, not, not the kind where it sits in a museum and, and it's only looked at occasionally. It's, it's more of a functional art where the form and, and beauty work together so that God can fill your life as his workmanship, as you are his handiwork, so that now he can take and place you in places at your workplace and in your neighborhood and at your school or wherever it might be. And he's placed you so that being his handiwork, you're not just some uh, piece in a, a museum as an oddity for people to come by and gaze at occasionally. But you're a functional piece that God wants to work in every day and work through every day for His glory. And so the question for us today is, are you joyfully living in God's grace? Not just as a past reality, but as a current reality in your life, enjoying the grace of God today and tomorrow. If you're... Uh, a young person today, and you have a brother or sister at home, and if you've been baptized in the name of Jesus, do you extend to your brothers and sisters and live in this sort of grace? Do you as a husband live in the grace of Jesus with your wife, and as a wife live in the grace of Jesus with your husband, as in your workplace, wherever you are, walking in the grace of God? Would you uh, pull out your hymnal with me? And open up to this front flap here. As we're walking through this series, trying to examine our church covenant together and trying to understand where are some of these phrases tethered to in the Bible. Uh, because the church covenant for us is not scripture, the scripture scripture. But this tries to give and boil down some ways that give some description to who we are. And so we're just going to read the opening sentence together. And when we get to the comma before and, we'll stop. Okay? Read with me. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We're going to pick up some of the other phrases as we move forward together. But we can only be committed to God and to one another because it starts with the grace that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this great gift. And I know for many of us, these are terms that are so familiar. Um, and sometimes with familiarity, we, we kind of can lose sight of the deep richness of their meaning. And so we thank you that we have been saved by grace through faith. It, it incorporates our believing and our responding. And so we thank you for that, that you have loved us enough to not leave us stuck in our sin, but you've come, you've done what we most needed, and now you leave us living in your grace. So God, help us to be people individually and together who know your grace, who live in your grace, and who seek increasingly to extend your grace into a world that is full of ungrace. 
when we hear about school shootings and violence around the country, when we hear about uh, homelessness and the issues where grace does not abound. We live in a world where darkness is evident and we live in a county where sometimes it can be prettied up and covered over. But God help us not be blind to the real hurtings of people around us. People who need your grace. Help us to be a church and help us to be individuals who seek to share your good grace so that many more would fill this place and many more would say, yes, it is by God's good gift of grace that I have been saved. Guide us in this, we pray, Jesus, for your name and in your sake we pray now. Amen. Perhaps today as we've talked, you don't know really what it means to walk and live in the grace of Jesus and you'd like to begin a conversation learning more about what that means. There's nothing more than we would love to do than to start that chat with you. And one way you can begin that is as we stand in a moment and we sing together, you can make your way here to the front and we'd be happy to begin to to talk about what that means. Or maybe you've wondered about church membership and uh, you're ready to step into that. Uh, Whatever decision you may need to make before the Lord and this fellowship, this is an opportunity for you to do that. Would you find your music sheet and stand together and let's sing.